Thank you again for the time that we have this morning. Thank you for the Lord's Day. Thank you that we can look in Scripture and see that from exception of creation itself, that you instituted, you set aside a day. And uh, so that's why we're here. A great opportunity to begin that by looking at uh, Scripture in we get to the service. So bless this time we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Am I going in and out? For real? I don't Okay. Okay. All right. So uh, Glenda, what is the word used to describe the Hebrew canon? The Tanakh, correct. And Gary, what are the three parts? All right. Jamie, what are the three parts? That's the middle one. No. What's the first five books? Law, prophets, and writings. Yeah, yeah. Law, prophet, and writings, correct. All right, now we're really making things tough here. Um, and the prophets are divided pretty much evenly into two, category, two categories. Anybody want to not major and minor? You said that last time, and we were wrong last week, too, Dennis. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's the right answer to the right. Yeah, different question. Correct, yes. What do you have, Wayne? Ugh. No, that's the next question. Yeah, yeah. Anyone else? Uh, he said, <laughs> you, you, you ramping up for the next question? Pre-exilic and post-exilic. All right. So two different categories of prophets, former and latter. The former prophets, the latter prophets. And we'll uh, look at how, I think it'll be more helpful once we get into them and you see um, what the significance is of that division. But yeah, so you have former prophets, latter prophets, and then uh, Gary Writings is divided into two categories. What are those? Oh, I just told you. Oh, my goodness. This is, you guys are, okay, pre-exilic and post-exilic. Okay. All right. All right. Now we're going to ramp it up. PJ, when was the Pentateuch likely authored? Uh, Not different. 14. 1446 to 1406, which is um, that uh, during what was going on, probably, at the time that he was off. Yeah, wandering in the wilderness. Very good. Um, Okay, now here is one of the the points from the class last week when we looked at Genesis. Compared to other religions, what was unique about the theology presented in Genesis? We don't probably look at it quite so much that way today because we're so used to it, but then it, it stood out as being different. Wayne, what do you think? Uh, yes, that's true, monotheistic. Um, that is accurate. It's not the answer I'm looking for. There was a, I used a, a Latin term, but it had several other, I, I put other names for it. Steve? Everything came out of nothing. The other end of that spectrum. It's all going somewhere. So, telos. 
right? That whole concept of telos, that not only is there only one God, so very good, Wayne, but that everything in history is moving toward a point, that there is a fulfillment, that there is an end goal, that there is a reason for, there is a God that is sovereign over all of history. And so instead of a pantheon of gods, instead of having um, lots of different gods that you're trying to worship slash manipulate to benefit yourself in the short term today, we're looking at eternal God that exclusively on the throne that is in control over all of time that's moving towards an actual point of fulfillment and a goal. That would have stood out. Well, it stands out today too, but it would have stood out at that time as that's different. And that changes your attitude entirely, right, about even how you live your daily life when you go, well, this is part of something much bigger than me trying to uh, find benefit in um, uh, my life today. Okay, last question, uh, last review question. All right, using my, uh, what I refer to as a yellow brick road analogy, what were the bricks and what was the mortar? What were the two things that kind of spent quite a bit of time on? Okay, which makes me think I'm going to put it back here. That's right, mortar genealogies, very good. And what do you have for bricks? Do you remember? Yes, covenants. So we looked at covenants as well. And, uh, and so the, the, we saw that, that there were these major things going on, these promises that were being given, and that these genealogies were moving the storyline along in between. Okay. And by the way, I did bring a few extra copies of week one handout. Uh, um, if anybody doesn't, I'm happy to to share that. But uh, if you remember, or if you still have that handout right there, remember Genesis is the prologue. So now we're actually moving into the, you know, if you want to say law proper uh, category. God's promise. This is just driving me bonkers. If I stand closer over on this side, is this better? Okay. 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 Um, okay, so we looked at the seeds of God, because one of the things I focused on with Genesis is the fact that this is we have all these seeds of promise have been planted, and now begins the growth of that plan. So that's that whole concept of telos, that it's moving. So now we have the, the, the things themselves that God promised, and it's moving somewhere. Now... Um, we already established before um, yep. so we're still looking at Moses for the uh, for the Pentateuch for the entirety of it. Our dates haven't changed, so we're still at our fourteen forty six BC to fourteen oh so those are our 40 years of wandering. Now, this is what's interesting, though. Title is that this title Exodus is a Greek title. And you're probably, you may have even used the word before. You know, it just means going out. People say things like, hey, there, you know, somebody came in and pulled the fire alarm and there was a mass exodus, right? It's just this going out that's going on. But that was not the original title by the Hebrews. 
This shouldn't bother us in any way because titles are not inspired, but uh, the Hebrews did not call it Exodus, even though that's a, an acceptable and it makes sense in a, in a single word for us to know what, what is a, uh, a major event in the book. Um, but the original Hebrew title was the first few words of the book. So do me a favor and turn, take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 1. And we're going to do a little raise of hands thing here. In, in Exodus chapter 1, raise your hand if the very first word you have in your translation that you're looking at is the word these. All right, I think that's the most of the room. All right, you can lower your hands. Is there anyone that has the word now? All right, we have about four that have the word now. Is there anyone that has the word and? Okay, so this actually becomes important because if you look at the Hebrew uh, uh, language it actually starts with, the entire book starts with a conjunction. It starts with a word that is frequently translated as and, but depending on the context can also be translated as now, which is why we have a few people that have the word now. Um, but for whatever reason, in a lot of the English translations, they just drop that off and just start it with these instead of it saying actually and these, or maybe now these. And that becomes important because that conjunction, just like we use conjunctions in the, in the English language, is drawing a connection to what was before. And this becomes important to us because as we think about everything that is contained within Genesis that we talked about last week, and as we look in Exodus, we know that it's, it's, it's a part two, in a sense. The story is continuing along, and it is connected. So, this is kind of interesting then. Turn back into uh, where we just were, Exodus, Exodus 1. Turn back one page, and what are the last two words in Genesis? In Egypt, Okay. So, the book of Genesis ends with, in Egypt, the book of Exodus begins with, and these were, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. So, the actual original Hebrew title, I guess I should have given you the, that actual answer, is, uh, and, these are the, uh, and these are the names. That's the, if you were to say it in Hebrew, that's what the title would be, and these are the names in the original Hebrew. So... If the promises of Genesis are moving towards a telos, they're moving towards a fulfillment, they're moving towards a uh, particular goal, and we remember that the most recent promise, the most recent covenant was the Abrahamic covenant, and if the Exodus is a kind of sequel to Genesis, then how would we expect Moses to move the story along? What would he use to move the story along? Uh, thank you. See, Monica's got this down. It's genealogies. And so that's why we shouldn't be surprised at all now that we have this conjunction that says and can be translated as now. And then the very first thing it says is these are the names of the sons of Israel. 
So we have a geographical location of Egypt, and then as we enter into the Exodus account, we immediately have this moving sidewalk of the names um, uh, with, contained within this genealogy. So our setting is Egypt. The content uh, is the fulfillment of the Abra- uh, Abrahamic covenant. And remember that covenant involves a people and a place. Abraham was promised um, you're going to have people as numerous as the stars, sands of the sea, and there's going to be a land given to them. So we have a, a people and place covenant. And all of that is going to take place according to Genesis 49 through Judah. So, again, if we think back, this is this whole two-part, we want to continue the storyline. If we think back uh, in Genesis 37, Joseph takes center stage. And, in fact, if you even look when Joseph is very first introduced, it's by genealogy. So Moses uses a genealogy to, to kind of introduce Joseph. And then you have a bunch of chapters that are focused on the story of Joseph. And everybody loves the story of Joseph, right? It's a story of salvation. It is beautiful. We love the story of Joseph. But that's not where Genesis ends. It doesn't really end with Joseph. It ends with Jacob talking about Judah, Genesis 49 is this blessing of, Abraham, of Jacob talking about Joseph's brother Judah and the fact that that telos, that fulfillment, this storyline that's moving towards something is going to happen through Joseph's brother Judah. So think about this. Between the end of Genesis, where we have in Egypt, and a future that we know will continue through Judah is 400 years of slavery. Uh, Brooklyn, go ahead and read for us Genesis 15, verses 12 to 14. So, re- so we're, remember, we're tying all this. The, 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 the covenant made with Abraham is moving in a particular direction. It involves being in Egypt, and it has this genealogy, but all of this is on it, with the context of what Brooklyn's going to read right now. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then Yahweh said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Okay, so in this chapter that gives greater detail... Abraham, you have God telling Abraham, these people down the line, your descendants, they're going to be slaves, and they're going to be slaves for 400 years. I mean, that is, that is very precise. That's a lot of, of information. And what happens then is we have at the end of Genesis that they are in Egypt, and we have the beginning of Exodus that says, and these are the names. And so contained within that are those 400 years, so this, this idea of the fulfillment of what God had already told Abraham was going to take place. And this is always a good reminder, too, that um, all time is God's time. Um, you know, I, I, we want to learn more about Genesis and Exodus here, but I can't help. Let me take like a little preaching moment here, which is whatever's going on in your life, it is moving towards God's fulfillment, God's telos. He is sovereign, and the timing is his timing. So God was very precise in Genesis 15 
to Abraham about fulfilling his promise. And it took, this particular part of it took 400 years. And every person within those genealogies has their own story, right? Their whole own life. It's like driving down, uh, in, or going, going cross country, and you're on a country highway, and you're driving through some little tiny town, you know, population 52, and you see this farmhouse, and, you, and when you think about it, you go, generations have, may, you know, live, have come and gone out of that farmhouse that all have their own story. And that's what's going on in these genealogies that are also, even though we don't know all the details of every person, are also fulfilling this telos that God is moving the storyline forward. So all time is God's time, and we have to remember that for our lives too, that we are playing a part in a plan that God has uh, and that he's fulfilling towards his, uh, towards his goal. Um, <laughs> thank you, Rob Roy. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Praise God that he's patient toward us. Okay, a separate little theological note that I wanted to point out because I, I just... This stuff is fascinating. Nick and I uh, like to talk about these kinds of things, too. Uh, So the original, think about this little combination of of facts here. The original mandate to Adam and Eve before the fall even entered the storyline was for them to be fruitful and to multiply. You get to after the fall, and we look, uh, remember how we talked about last week, even though there was like a chosen person of the, you know, there seems like there were always these two offsprings kind of good, good guy, bad guy, Cain, Abel, eventually Cain, Seth. Um, but then the, it never lasted. The, it didn't turn into a good team because even after it went from, um, after it went from Adam and Eve over to Seth, eventually you get to Genesis 6 and there's just widespread corruption anyway. Then you get the flood and you start over with Noah and you're like, well, at least we've got Shem, as opposed, specifically as opposed to Ham. But then as you walk through what happens with Shem, then you get to chapters 10 and 11, you have the table of nations, and they're all speaking one language, and now you just have the Tower of Babel. So you have widespread corruption all over again. So God starts from scratch again, and he starts with Abraham. And now that he's got Abraham, he's made a promise to Abraham that he is going to have a people, numerous people, and that he's going to possess a land. Now, that promise that was given to Abraham was renewed. It was repeated to his son, Isaac. It was repeated again, the same promise. Hey, I'm going to remind you what I promised your father, Abraham. Hey, Jacob, I'm going to remind you what I promised your grandfather, Abraham. There's going to be a people that comes through your line, numerous, and that you're going to possess a land. So you figure, okay, now we've got three full generations without it turning into widespread corruption. But we've got three generations of God making, renewing this promise. And so you would think, all right, we know they're entering Egypt, so how many enter Egypt? They're going to be numerous. They're in Egypt, and how many enter? Well, if you look at Exodus chapter 1 and verse 5, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. That sounds a little weak. It sounds like, eh. But this is what's fascinating. Is just a few verses later then. Let me make sure I got my verses right. Just a few verses later, um, we see down, at, starting at 8 and 9. 
Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. And uh, then it goes on uh, to show how exponentially they continued to grow, and then uh, down at verse 20. So this is even after, in the face of all of that oppression. So this new pharaoh lays all of this... Uh, work on the backs of the Israelites, and you get down to verse 20. So God dealt, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And so when you, when you look at these things, these theological things, you go, oh, so they entered a foreign land with 70 people, and in the face of just intentional, directed oppression, God fulfills his promise in that environment, and they just, boom explode, multiply, 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 which is what they're supposed to do. Now, in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, what you have is Jesus appointing 70 men to go out into the world. Now, some translations, it'll say 72. There are manuscripts that say that it's 70. This, you know, it being specifically 70 or 72, I think, is not terribly important either way. But essentially, this is what you have, is you have Jesus under this new covenant, in, under this new scheme, and under the idea and the theological concept of a new creation, you have Jesus sending 70 out into the land. And do you remember what they said when they came back? They said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So there's this repeated theme now that, that recalls what we're looking at in Exodus, where Jesus is sending these 70 out. And in the face of demonic oppression, we know that the church is going to grow and is going to, the kingdom of God is going to expand uh, to all corners of the world. So you see these things happening in scripture. And so these numbers uh, uh, that, that are put there, you kind of go, man, is is God really fulfilling his promise? And the answer is absolutely yes. And we can see how in one sense he's doing that in a physical way in the land of Egypt. And then you leap forward all the way into the Gospels and you go, oh my goodness. He's doing the same thing in a better, more glorious way as well. Okay. Time to flip the board. All right, as far as the structure of Exodus, it is divided into two parts. And there are, uh, grab black. Uh, it's divided into two, two parts, and at, at its center is a particular event. You might say that it is a brick in the path, which means that it's a what? No, that would be the mortar. Covenant. Right. So at the center, uh, in other words, kind of at the focus here is we're now to Moses. So now we're talking about the Mosaic covenant. But then this is what's interesting uh, about the way that this kind of breaks down is that chapters one to eight is Israel focuses on Israel escaping Egyptian control so that they get to Mount Sinai. Oops. 
Mount Sinai, where this, where this takes place. And then chapters 19 to 40, the, the second half, all focus on what takes place at Mount Sinai with that Mosaic Covenant. So the first 18 chapters, it's the escape and arrival to Mount Sinai, and then 19 through 40 is everything that takes place at Mount Sinai. Um, So like I already said, remember that Isaac and Jacob received that renewal or that repeat of the Abrahamic covenant, but the Mosaic covenant actually had new information. So it was built on the Abrahamic covenant, but it has greater detail. It's bearing itself out. It has added instruction. So my reader for Exodus 2, Michelle, uh, Exodus 2, 23 and 24. Now it happened in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of the slavery and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery rose up to God. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and God saw the sons of Israel and God knew them. Okay, so when people cried out and... uh you know, using kind of that anthropomorphic language, you know, that God heard them. What does he do? He remembers the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that is to say that whatever it is that's going to go forward as this thing's moving towards fulfillment, as it has a goal, that whole telos concept, whatever he's about to do, which we know is going to end up being the Mosaic Covenant, it is built on, it's because God remembered the, Abraham, the covenant that he made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And we see that development in Exodus 19, verses 1 to 8. Glenda? On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, They set out from Repidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. Then Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Okay. So right there you have it. You have um, blessings and cursings. You have a, a, an expectation of loyalty. The God is saying, I've done this, therefore there should be loyalty. And they all submit themselves to it. They say, yes, all that you have said, we shall do. Um, that is a further development of that Abrahamic covenant. So that Genesis 15 promise that Brooklyn read earlier that talked about the 400 years of slavery, the outcome of that was that they were going, that God was going to bring judgment on their captors, 
and that they, the people, would plunder their captors. But tied to that is this requirement of loyalty. That is what God is of them. He's going to do the work. Hopefully, in me describing, this, this is another preaching moment here, right? So, it, think about how this applies to your life. He is making the promise. He is saying, this is what I will do. Here's what you've got to do. Be loyal. Just don't abandon your first love. Believe God. Believe the very promises that he's made that he is going to do it. Don't go out on your own. And we see uh, a particular phrase used that's leveraged several times. This will sound familiar to you. And this is the sentiment that he is... um, that he's expressing. So who's my Jasmine? Exodus 20, the first two verses. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Okay. Over and over again, if you have read the Old Testament, you have heard that phrase. I am the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Just by him saying those words, it's not a you owe me kind of thing, even though we would. He's saying that because this is reminding the people that he made a promise, that he is a promise-keeping God. He did, in fact, deliver on that promise in the past. He's going to deliver on the promise in the future, which means that wherever you are in your life right now, he is in the middle of delivering on the promise that he made. And so as a more tangible thing, he's saying that remember he is the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. That entire episode that Pastor Nick has preached through on bringing the people out of the land of Egypt is a story of salvation. Remember, I am a saving God. Remember, I am a God that made a promise to you to save you. I have saved you before in miraculous, in amazing ways that defy all logic and yet in reflection hit logic on every conceivable point from God's perspective. And so when he says that, he is communicating that you have one job, Israel, And he is also saying today to you, you have one job, and that's to be loyal. Be loyal to your God. So what he does through this uh, Mosaic Covenant is he's telling them how they are going to be governed as they take possession of the land promised to Abraham. So he saved them, you know, Genesis ended with in Egypt. Then we have the beginning of Exodus that is... um, only 70 people going in, and then in the face of excessive oppression and slavery, they're multiplying. God is blessing them, blessing them, blessing them, but the burden is becoming heavier and heavier. God rescues them and saves them, and that's that story of the first part, and then he takes them to Mount Sinai, and then before they actually enter the land in the future, because they're not there yet, they're at Mount Sinai, he stops them and said, okay, look, 
before you go that, get that land that I'm going to give you, we need to have a talk, right? We're going to talk about how things are going to go. Did any, have any of you ever taken your kids to Disneyland? You know, there's going to be something wonderful going on. But you stop them first. Look, before we walk through this gate, <laughs> you know, don't go running off. Stay close to your mother. Don't melt down. Please tell me if you've got to go to the bathroom. Whatever, right? You're laying down some rules before you enter the promised land. Disneyland, right? Dear goodness. In any case, that is what God is doing here with his people. He's holding them still, and he's saying, this is how it's going to go. Before you go into the land, we're going to lay down a few rules. And, and what's that? Yeah, or we're leaving. That's right. Or we're leaving. And, 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 and God is, he's a God of his word. Yes, they did end up leaving. That's a great point. See? Disneyland comes through. Um, okay, so that's what's going on. And, and so Pastor Nick, as he progresses through Exodus, is going to hit on this stuff. And he'll give you all the meat and potatoes um, on, on everything that's going to take place with that Mosaic Covenant at Mount Sinai and how it is that they're going to be governed. Um, I want to make sure that we hit... Um, some of the major themes, this is the way that I've put it anyway, major themes and minor themes. Uh, major themes, and, by, and the, the distinction that I made here between major and minor, I, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, super important and just a little bit important. What, what I mean by major themes and minor themes is on these major themes that we see show up in Exodus, they get repeated over and over again in Scripture. Like this, the events in Exodus themselves get leveraged over and over again to describe what it is that God is doing. So, of course, one of them, one of the big ones, is we have what I've already talked about, which is this whole concept, um, I'll do it this way, of a salvation through the Exodus event. I mean, the Exodus event reference over and over and over in Scripture. It's like, remember that thing happened. Another theme that we see um, Pastor Nick also preached on, we see all kinds of significance is that, remember, the Passover was instituted in Exodus. So we get this reference to the Passover lamb, um, and it becomes a, obviously a huge deal as you get into the gospel and uh, Passion Week and, and Jesus serving as that Passover lamb. The other uh, theme that we see that starts in Exodus and that gets continued throughout Scripture and into the New Testament is that whole idea of tabernacle. They first build the tabernacle. Of course, that theme gets um, expanded on when later in the Old Testament we have the temple. And then, of course, you get into the New Testament and you have that, the, those Greek words that really mean that um, out of uh, John... John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. That's drawing from the history of what is, starts right here in Exodus. Okay, as far as other themes that we see, what I've called minor themes that are, I don't know, kind of more like one time um, that, that we also see is a couple of them. One is that Moses is a, you know, he foreshadows, he foreshadows Christ. So the reason I put it in that category is it's like a one-for-one, one, you know. Not that it's only mentioned once, but just that it's a direct, it's not, kind of re, it's not replayed, it's, it's a one-for-one one thing. There, Moses is a, is a foreshadows Christ. Um, 
Christ is a greater Moses. And then one other that I know Pastor Nick has already preached on the last, uh, recently, is, is uh, oops, it is the idea of manna. And, you know, God's a, a providing God. And, uh, you know, of course, we have eventually Jesus is the bread of life. Um, so we have, you know, these are just a couple of things that I've grabbed out to show this idea in the, in the Hebrew canon in, in the Old Testament. You know, it's like the farther back you go, the you know, further to the left you go in your Bible, you've, you have so much foreshadowing typology because it's packed into that, you know, it's concentrate. And so as it makes its way through time, it starts to bear itself out in individualized ways. Um, but these are things that we see at this front end of all of Scripture that continue then, that, are going, that we're going to see become a bigger and bigger deal, or reused, you know, that Hebrew literature style reused. And uh, one last quiz question. What was, what's the verse that's kind of the original point uh, when I, you know, the circles, the, you know, what's the first seed, the first little that then gets everything kind of repeated and prominent. All right, very good. Anyone? That's exactly right. Genesis 3.15. So just something to always keep in your head. Genesis 3.15, the promise, that original promise of uh, a child that will um, crush the head of the serpent. And that, that just sets everything in motion for that telos that we're all hoping for. And we're somewhere, you know, if you want to put us in the 400 years of slavery, whatever, if we're year 50 or year 399, I don't know, that's in God's plan. But it's all exactly where it's supposed to be. You're exactly where you're supposed to be in that plan. And parts of Exodus. Any comments? Oh, we have about five minutes. Brother. One of the things to... Um to nuance is that in the Mosaic Covenant and the theme of salvation, that the context of salvation, it can be easy to think, well, salvation is salvation, period, always, uh, we're talking about eternal life. In the context of Exodus, it's a salvation, but it's a temporal salvation. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it doesn't directly connect to Genesis 3.15. It does and that it furthers the telos that the um, it brings us closer to the one who will be born who saves right um, but those who are under that covenant it's a covenant of works and eventually they they are not loyal and based under that covenant of works the sanctions kick in and they're kicked out and in Daniel 9 he's praying in that view of them being in exile about how um, they had sinned, how they'd broken the covenant, but then he looks forward to the new covenant, which was promised in Genesis 3.15. In uh, Jude, it says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So there were saints who did believe. They were saved under the Mosaic covenant, but they weren't saved by the Mosaic Covenant. Right. They right. were saved by the New Covenant and its promise form in Genesis 3.15. It hadn't taken the, um, its fullest form of when the uh, true Passover lamb came. And then the true exodus 
that the temporal exodus pointed to, the, tr the true tabernacle that the exodus tabernacle pointed to, the true Passover lamb, the prophet greater than Moses, all of that, it, it pointed, these things pointed to something that it was not itself. It, so that's one of the nuanced areas to be careful with because it's easy to conflate the two together mm -hmm. or separate them unnaturally apart. They, they have a very close relationship. They're distinct. And um, being able to not go too far in one direction or the other is super important. Thank you. I was just going to mention um, the writing style of, of Exodus and, and overall all of the Torah um, and Moses and how God communicates through Moses. It, it, Exodus to me is just so incredible in that it has narrative. And what people think of when you say Exodus, if you were to say, hey, what's Exodus about? They'd probably go straight to recounting narrative. But then throughout it, you have in the midst of maybe the most one of the most climactic moments of narrative, you have Moses breaking out in song, and you have a song right in the middle of it. Right. And then eventually you move on. It's like, wait a minute, now we're getting into narrative again, going up on a mountain, but then it's la, 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 here's all these rules. And it, I'm so grateful how engaging it is to read and to think about, because when you realize how much is jammed in there, it, it just seems like, you know, Nick has an impossible task of preaching through it because you got to choose from so much. So it, it's just an interesting stylistically because I think even more so, even though the laws in Genesis, poetry's in Genesis, all of those, it seems like an exodus. All of these things are ratcheted up even more. There, you still have narrative, but there's so much um, other types of literature put into exodus that are. Um, it's just it's valuable and it's beautiful and it's engaging yeah. and it, yeah. frankly entertaining <laughs> yeah yeah uh, over here and while you're walking over there I, I, I think Rob always even brought it up before but uh, you know the, the, the covenant the laws the rules they're gracious right so going back to our analogy when the parent gives instruction to the child before they go into Disneyland why are they giving them that instruction isn't Hey, me saying, hey, please tell me that you have to go to the bathroom. That is for the child's benefit. It, you know, hey, let's take a break so that you don't have a complete meltdown and can enjoy the rest of the day. That is for your benefit. Me restraining you is for your benefit. It is a gracious thing. So something to keep in mind. Yeah, Jamie. Academics posit that there are multiple authors of the Pentateuch. Um, and yet, we're, um, the, the general view is that Moses wrote it all as you are uh, promoting. Um, mm -hmm. How do we answer the academic point of view that say, states there are multiple authors? So uh, a couple of different ways to look at that. One is that God uh, gave Moses you know, some kind of insight to, to be finish even how he was going to die, but uh, the, the, probably the more likely answer is there were more people involved, uh, some editor, some, some editing, but the lion, lion uh, is Moses, and we looked at those verses that show kind of the internal um, things. 
that, that demonstrate that Moses was. But did, are there other fingerprints where other people involved? Uh, sure, that, that could very well be uh, that they helped finish it off or there are some editing under, under God's uh, supervision or the Holy Spirit's inspiration even as the, before the canon is closed. But being able to just say that Moses is the author, I think is, we can say, unequivocally. I mean, even in what uh, Glenda just read, you know, this is God telling Moses to tell the people. He is God's instrument to communicate to the people. And I think that that principle is carried out as well in his authorship during the wandering in the wilderness to communicate that and put it, put it down on tablet, so to speak, or on papyrus or papyri. Okay. Uh, quick. One thing um, that's observed when you look at Genesis and Exodus. So in Genesis, it begins in, the, in its creation narrative, God's spirit hovering over the earth. And then it goes in the detail of creating the world. When we get to the end of Exodus, it has this detailed creation of the tabernacle and the court. And then it ends once again with God hovering over mm-hmm. this creation. So it's kind of like a can you call it chiastic kind of mm-hmm. structure? So beautiful. It is interesting. Kelly? I can. No. I'll just wait. Okay. It's okay. I'll wait. Okay. Well, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, uh, for I'm this morning. Thank you that we could just kind of take a a uh, jet plane over the top of uh, Exodus and just and just get that whole overview. We can see how it's divided in two parts, that we can see how it, these genealogies move us towards these really big, important pieces of your promises and your covenants. Thank you that you are the God that makes the promises, that reminds your people that you are the God brought people uh, out of Egypt. We are the people that have been brought from an ungodly ruler. So to you belongs all the glory. Bless passage, uh, I'm sorry, preacher and the message preached. Uh, we pray here soon. In Christ's name, amen. amen.